Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Monday, the 18th of September. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer, and welcome to our weekly Beyond Markets update. So far this month, the S&P 500 index is down 1.5%. And the Nasdaq Composite Index is down 2.5%. Those are hardly concerning numbers given the same indices are still up 5.5% and 4.5% since the 1st of June. But still, it's nice to know why has September been weaker. And the answer lies in the relentless grind higher in the 10-year Treasury bond yield. It was just 3.2% back in May, and now it's 4.3%. That's the opposite of what bond strategists expected to happen. In a survey of 29 of them done by Reuters two weeks ago, 23 said the yield had already peaked in the current cycle. Well, instead, it's continued to go higher. When bond yields go up, their prices fall, and when we look at the return of that 10-year Treasury bond so far this year, it's negative 1%. What's interesting about that is if the yield is still at this level 15 weeks from now, then the return will be negative for all of 2023. Just to remind you, last year, the 10-year Treasury had a negative return of 18%, and the year before that, it had a negative return of 4%. Now, going all the way back to the year 1790, 233 years ago, because that's how far back the data goes for U.S. government bonds, there were never three down years in a row. So if it's down this year, that's something really very unprecedented. What's kept bond yields rising and their prices falling is the idea that the American economy is so strong that inflation will stay high and the Federal Reserve will need to keep rates high, maybe even raise them some more. One important number is retail sales. Higher retail sales generally mean higher inflation. Last week, the August retail sales number came out. It was 0.6% higher than July. The consensus among economists was looking for it to be just flat. But if we look at the retail sales adjusted for inflation, they're not rising. People aren't actually buying more things. They're just being forced to pay more because prices are higher. One big part of retail sales is cars. They're about 20 to 22% of retail sales. They're about 3 to 3.5% of GDP. There is some concern that for the first time ever, the United Auto Workers Union is striking against all three of Detroit's automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler. Right now, nobody cares because dealer inventories are ample. There are about two months of sales based on current rates. And just two days into the strike, the car companies and the UAW started talking to each other, no doubt under tremendous pressure from the government. The UAW wants a 36% wage increase over four years. The car companies are offering 20%. To quote one worker who was interviewed by the Washington Post, we work at Ford and can't even afford the cars we make. She said she and her husband, who works at General Motors, have to pick up extra jobs to get by. So you'd figure the government would side more with the workers. Plus, we're 60 weeks away from the next presidential election. Michigan is a swing state. It leans Democrat for now. But jobless claims, in other words, people filing for unemployment benefits, are rising there. And they're rising in the seven other swing states, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, and Nevada. 
So car workers getting a 9% raise every year for the next four years, that could be considered inflationary. But overall, the labor market looks like it's cooling. For example, the Labor Department's jobs opening survey shows the percent of people quitting their jobs is falling. That means supply of labor is more ample than before. And indeed, the quit rate tends to lead the employment cost index. That's the measure of compensation costs that the Fed watches more closely than anyone else. It's when that data series kept rising very quickly in the second half of 2021 that Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and his colleagues became alarmed and made a 180-degree turn from dovish to hawkish at the December 2021 FOMC meeting. And then, of course, they started the big rate hike cycle in March 2022. So the fact that the quits rate is falling and therefore the employment cost index will fall too. That's a good thing. Another worry as far as inflation goes is gasoline. Until recently, pump prices this year were lower than they were last year. But that changed because the oil price has gone up 35% since the summer. In fact, it recently registered a so-called golden cross. That means the 50-day moving average moved above the 200-day moving average. Technical analysts consider that a bullish signal. And you would have noticed, surely, if you took a plane to go on holiday this summer, everyone is out and about. Bloomberg uses production, imports, and inventory changes to determine a theoretical demand for oil. Based on those inputs, demand for oil in the United States is close to an all-time high. In fact, in its most recent assessment, the U.S. government's own Energy Information Administration expects oil to average $93 a barrel in the fourth quarter. That's $7 higher than their forecast of a month ago. But what's interesting is the move higher in oil hasn't been accompanied by a move higher in other commodity prices. Our technical analyst, Menser Puchinsi, studied what happens when oil is rising, but the rest of the commodity complex is not. And he found that a sustainable bull market in oil, without other commodities joining in, is unusual. Usually, when the oil price trends up, but it's not confirmed by other commodities, oil's returns end up being negative. The real reason oil has gone up, in our opinion, is because not so much demand, but the export cuts from Saudi Arabia. But our head of economics research, Norbert Rucker, thinks 80% of those Saudi cuts are being offset by output increases in other countries, especially pariah states like Russia, Iran, and Venezuela, where the West is willing to look the other way. And if you add on to that the transition to electric cars, which we think will cause a peak in oil demand next year, then the outlook for oil is that it should go down. And we see it at $75 a barrel a year from now. So we should think about all those things when we reflect on the August Consumer Price Index report for inflation that came out last Wednesday. On a headline basis, it did rise from 3.2% in July to 3.7% in August. But using high-frequency data, the Cleveland Federal Reserve is able to predict quite accurately what the current month's reading will be. They're saying it'll stay at 3.7% on a headline basis. But for the core inflation rate, in other words, X food and energy that the Federal Reserve looks at more closely, the Cleveland Fed looks for a print of 4.2% this month, down from 4.3 in August, 4.7 in July, 4.8 in June, and 5.3% in May. Of course, a 4.2% inflation reading is still too high for the Fed to start cutting rates. 
so it probably won't say it's over-raising rates when it meets tomorrow and Wednesday. But in a couple of months, if data continues to move in the right direction, it should be in a position to do that. One other thing the Fed pays close attention to is inflation expectations. On that note, the University of Michigan's one-year inflation expectation index that was released last week showed the average American looks for inflation a year from now at 3.1%, down from their expectation of 3.5% a month ago. And the five-year inflation outlook fell from 3% to 2.7%. So when the Fed does say no more hikes, and if it's not this week, then in all likelihood it'll be at the next meeting in November, you'd assume the big inflow into money market funds would stop. Where would the money go instead? Well, I'll read what our chief investment officer, Yves Bonzon, wrote last week, and I'm going to quote him now. The world's three largest economies, the United States, China, and the Eurozone, are experiencing increasingly divergent economic circumstances. The German economy is contracting under the combined pressure of high energy costs and slowing Chinese demand. China's rapidly decelerating urban migration is leading to a structural downsizing of the real estate sector at the worst possible time, but the U.S. economy has been displaying unexpected resilience among soaring interest rates. End of quote. So with Germany, well, a picture tells a thousand words, and the front page of last week's Der Spiegel, Germany's largest circulation news magazine, carried a somber image, a chart of the GDP growth of five other countries, that are all positive, and then Germany's GDP growth is negative. And it says, all are growing, not us. Why the German economy is in decline. Germany's IFO Employment Expectations Index has a good track record for leading actual employment, and it's going down. Which makes sense, because the fact is that Germany is an analog economy based on old-school gasoline-powered car manufacturing. For them to build cars like BYDs would be 25% more expensive. So their motor vehicle production is still below pre-COVID levels, as are other major industrial sectors of their economy. They're 20 years behind, and they're supposed to be driving Europe. Exports of German cars into China fell 21% in the first half of this year, because Chinese don't want German cars anymore. Their own cars are great. Unfortunately, not much else is great in China right now, the Chinese aren't in a consuming mood. The 60 million square feet of residential real estate sold in July was the least of any month since 2012. And another sign that things aren't going so well in China is the fact that the gold price in China is at a 6% premium to contracts in the West. That's the largest arbitrage on record. The natural deduction one would make from looking at that is they don't want to own renminbi. Well, if they can't buy other currencies because the capital account's closed, and they don't like property, and their corporate bonds are defaulting, and their stock market's in a bear market, well, the best they can do is buy gold. But getting back to our CIO's views, when it comes to markets, I'll read what else he had to say, and once again, I'll quote him now. Right now, we think U.S. bonds would represent a great opportunity if inflation were returned to an average of 2%. For the first time in 16 years, the free cash flow yield on U.S. large-cap equities is lower than the yield on 10-year Treasury bonds. However, we expect long-term U.S. inflation to average above 3%, which still makes a compelling case for equities strategically. End of quote. So to round off this podcast on the equity market, 
So far this year, the S&P has had a remarkably close fit with its long-run seasonality. The correlation is 90% with the average pattern since 1945. And the long-run seasonality shows the end of the year is the best time to be in the S&P. Our view is the current stock market consolidation will be over by mid-October at the latest, and from there we should rally into the year-end. One reason for that, apart from seasonality, is earnings. The earnings recession in the U.S. is behind us, with a broad-based improvement in profit margins expected in the third quarter. The consensus is looking for a 0.2% year-on-year increase in earnings in the third quarter. That would be the first quarter of year-on-year growth since the third quarter of 2022. Excluding energy, third quarter earnings would be up 5% year-on-year. Then the view of corporate profitability on a long-term basis doesn't leave much room for a recession because we're looking for earnings to grow about 8-10% to next year and about 11% the year after. As long as earnings growth is not negative, equity markets should be fine. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now. I wish you a great week ahead, and we'll speak with you again next week. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.